Hi, welcome to the Extra Podcast, episode 247. This is your silent producer, Matt, <laughs> who is no longer silent. They've given me a microphone. It's what happens at spring break. This is a big <laughs> day. It's, it's a huge a, day. I'm expecting angelic choirs to burst forth here. My we, heart is is pounding. <laughs> I'm excited. Are you sweating? I'm sweating. A little bit? There's like beads coming to, off my forehead. Yeah. It's not a pretty sight. No. No. This is why you don't talk. Yes. This is why I remain silent. <laughs> <laughs> Around me we uh, have Greg. Hi. Crystal. Hello. And Johnny. Hi there. Yes. I have to say, the poll results are in from last week. Mm-hmm, right. About did you guys know, mustard. Oh, yeah, 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 did you yeah, listen yeah. to the podcast last yeah. week? Did everyone listen? Yeah. Jeff was on a rant. First of all, before we get the results, before they're made, do you guys know the results? No. No. Okay. No. Do you think Jeff was totally wrong yes. in his overstatement of people's hatred for mustard? Yeah, I, I do. But then again, I spent a lot of time in Germany where they eat a lot of worst with mustard. <laughs> like... I'll say it again next week or whenever he's back and we talk about this again. I just can't believe how overestimating he is about people's distaste of mustard. Yeah. He'd say it about broccoli, too. Yeah. I think it's whatever he, he dislikes, he assumes masses of people also dislike. There's some moral category to him yeah, dislike totally. that everyone should agree <laughs> totally. with. Totally. Yeah. And I can say this all freely because I know he doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> when he's not here. And I'll say it again to his face later. There you go. The hatred of mustard is not universal. Yeah, so what, what did people say? Gotta well, see. I can't add the recent poll results now. I can't figure that percentage out. I'm not good at math. When did you right. cut off the day? It was yesterday. Okay. 66% of listeners responded in favor of mustard. Whoa. That's two out of three. Apparently, the French wow. corporation is safe for now. Although, I don't know if you noticed yesterday, there was a story that they have started making ketchup, and they want to go head-to-head with another with Heinz? major... Yes, Heinz. And uh, they can't get any market share, so Loblaws, the Canadian uh, grocery giant, pulled all the French's ketchup off of their shelves because nobody's buying it, so... Obviously, that wasn't. French's makes ketchup? Well, who knew? Well, Heinz makes mustard and relish. You can buy a little three pack for barbecues, right? Ah. Yeah. I don't know. Well, you could actually Tricky. get into sort of like mustard taste testing. You get your Dijon, you get your yep. uh, spicy yep. heat honey. mustard. You got whole, honey, honey, honey yeah. Dijon yep. is good. Yep. You got your French's, you got your Heinz, you know, all these. And then Coleman's. You can make your own mustard. You know, you have the little powder and stuff yep. and you mix it up with some. That's got to be powder. What, <laughs> what about, is Grey Poupon a thing? Isn't that a word? Is that a word for mustard? <laughs> Moutard in en français. Is grey poupon not a no, thing? It no, it's probably a, a type. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I have to add. It's like from some movie. Or I don't know. Some... I just like saying grey poupon. Ah. I have to add. We have official statistics sent in by a listener. Wow. From the America's favorite hot dog hot dog topping dot com. Uh huh. Seventy one percent of Americans prefer. Mustard there on their hot dogs. Swish. Prefer it or have it in conjunction with They pep- prefer it over, over, over other ketchup. toppings, ah. over so, ketchup. So in terms of hot dog toppings, though, I mean, I was always freaked out by people who put ketchup only on hot dogs. It just seemed wrong to me. It always seemed that you should always put mustard and then whatever else you want on the hot dog. Mm. Lots of onions. I was going to say the <laughs> onions are an underrated part of the hot dog. They oh, are. Oh, yeah. They grilled... Oh, Ungrilled, so good. anything. Yeah, you got to do it. I mean, you, you go to those little tubs at the Costco and you pile yeah. in those little banana peppers too. The Costco. 
<laughs> there's one. <laughs> Apparently, there's just one. <laughs> you know the Costco. <laughs> So but, they, okay, so yeah, yeah. so the better part of hot dog culture though is going to baseball games, yes. and, and finding a good dog in the ballpark. Yeah. And uh, San, uh, San Francisco AT and T mm. Park was probably the best hot dog I ever had. Mm. Yeah, Crystal, best hot dog you've ever had? Uh, at the Abbotsford Air Show, really? I worked there. Yeah. Wow. Huh. They had good Smokies. Crocker, uh, Matt, silent producer, best hot dog. My mom's. Really, oh, homemade. You know, I don't like hot dogs. Okay. So this is a stretch for me. I usually take the wiener out and dip it <laughs> and oh. then have the bun with just ketchup on it. Just eat the bun with the ketchup on it. So you'll oh, eat yeah. both parts of the dog. But separately. Separately. You're weird. But there, there's also a culture between how do you cook the hot Do you boil it? Boil. Do you oh, no. oven bake or barbecue no. on barbecue. the grill? Barbecue. Oh, barbecue. barbecue. And you slather the barbecue sauce onto yeah. it. So that's the unseen condiment on the hot dog. That's right. It oh, really totally. sings, right? I think it's boil or those lights in a 7 <laughs> <laughs> Eleven. That that's the way to cook uh, the hot dog. It's just sweat. Okay, I have another question. Another hot dog related question okay. first. Yeah. Do you think only kids should put ketchup only on their hot dog no you know what i am an equal opportunity hot dog eater <laughs> can you put ketchup on your hot dog under or over the age of 18 is that acceptable of course it these categories are so false you're just imposing all these un- <laughs> i'm looking at the paradigms. statistics here I'm the hot dog the paradigms statistics. are really out of whack you're here. a total legalist. can you put mustard <laughs> on french fries no you can't be a Christian. I don't know. Do Dijon oh. mustard mixed with mayonnaise. That's a real Belgian thing. Yeah. Ooh, I do the I, I do the mayo mixed with ketchup sometimes mm. with the French fries. Okay, one last hot dog statistic. Okay. The NHDSC's rules. I'm gonna assume that it means National Hot Dog Society something. <laughs> That's pretty good. Of hot dog etiquette state, ketchup should not be used as a topping for anyone over eighteen years of age, but Americans disagree. This is this is uh, the it's national hot dog country when it comes to hot dogs. I don't make this stuff up. The American people are like, we have an association for hot dogs. They've decided. <laughs> Since when do they get to tell us anything? Looks like they uh, they might be just about as passionate as hot dogs. They're about the political mm. uh, climate. Past the French's. Who would ketchup. be passionate about hot dogs? You. Well, I like I I am. I eat them separately. It's the only way. All right. Okay, we're gonna get into some questions now. Uh, our first question comes in from a listener talking about UFC, mm. uh, wanting to know uh, just some boundaries about watching UFC. And the question is, is watching UFC wrong? My husband has an interest in UFC, and I think it is wrong. Just wanting some thoughts and opinions on the UFC. So what are your thoughts and opinions, podcast crew? Mm. Johnny, when we were before we were talking, you were you were talking about the connection of UFC to boxing right. as an Olympic sport and the, the, the differences. And so that, I think that'd be a helpful. Well, idea. you know, if you, if you actually look at boxing in the Olympics, they have headgear, protective gear on their hands, obviously gloves. And then they uh, also limit it to three rounds. The, the referees in the middle of things trying to make sure that the person's not going to be concussed or whatever. The point in Olympic boxing isn't to knock the person out. It's actually to score points. 
and that you do that by actually how many times you connect to a person's head or or waist up, right? So this is how you score points in Olympic boxing. Uh, the the boxing culture, though, if you go back further enough in our society, you get the bare knuckle back alley kind of let's put a fiver down and find out who wins. The betting culture, there's all that kind of backstreet culture involved in the bare knuckle culture, and uh, I think there's more to do with UFC out of that culture than there is out of the Olympic boxing culture. Yeah, I agree. And also, and the tie-in to, of the, the popularity of UFC with uh, the popularity of boxing, plus a little bit of the, the like the WWE. Right. WW, what do they go by? F? WWE? C, no? e, w, like w, w, WWE. World Wildlife dot, Foundation took WWE. Right, the Wildlife yeah, Foundation right. took ah, WWE. Yeah. <laughs> so... Like there, there's a real mixture of um, entertainments going on with UFC in terms of well, I mean even the mm. the mixing of the different types of martial arts that they use, right? It's, right. It's right in the fabric of it. I, I I personally have never really felt like I had a had a dog in the race of UFC. I know some people it's like you're not a man if you don't like watching UFC, and some people feel like you are not a man if you do watch it. <laughs> and I just, I've never really had a passionate position on it, but. Yeah, I know I have some friends who know martial arts and so mm. they watch it with that in mind. And for them, it's an amazing kind of feat of, a, of a athleticism. And mm. uh, yeah, but martial arts, so they would so see it that in way. In the 70s when Kung Fu was the big program on television when, when I was a kid, uh, the, the big plus about this is self-defense. You never, he never actually aggressively used his mm. kung fu powers. He only used them to defend the yeah. weak and to defend himself. So it's quite different from those kind of martial art sports in which the people agree to get in the ring and really hurt each other. So I, I, I was telling you the story about my friend from England who came with me to a Vancouver mm. Canucks game back in the 90s when we were mm. living in England, and we came back to visit. They came with us, hey, local hockey team, NHL, you know, let's go. So we went to a game, and there were a lot of fights that night. And my English friend was really upset that, you know, you came to watch a hockey game, and, and, and a fight broke out. It's kind of the Rodney Dangerfield thing. Right. I want to, I want to uh, fight, and a hockey game broke out. Yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> pretty good. It's a good Dangerfield. <laughs> it was getting there. You I'm almost as it. old as Rodney Dangerfield. You, you can't see it, but he even did the collar thing. Oh, the collar he thing. He really yeah, got But I got no respect. Uh, but he wanted to get his money back. He yeah. says, I, I came to a hockey. I didn't come to a fight. And he says, he was going to like write the Vancouver Canucks. He was all up in arms. I said, your brother is a competitive kickboxer in England. Mm. <laughs> and the, those people get in the ring specifically to hurt each other. The violence in a hockey game is a byproduct of their mm. competitive nature and not the sport itself. And so I, I kind of tried to talk him off the ledge of trying to get his money back. Yeah, he didn't enjoy the game anyway. But. Right. So can I nuance this a little bit? You have two consenting adults getting in a ring together and fighting. Right. Why is that wrong? Well, not only just are they fighting, but they're, they're in on a process that is going to provide them with income. And it's providing entertainment to others. It's done in a controlled setting where there is medical personnel around. Sounds like gladiatorial combat. Except not to the death. So no medical right. personnel. Yeah. No, <laughs> li no lions <laughs> no. in the vicinity. I mean... No, well, that would be the argument, right? For sure. why is oh, it yeah. morally yeah. offensive, if that's the case? Yeah, I'm just wondering, because like in our culture, it's all about consent. 
So if you have two adults consenting mm. to partake in a particular activity, even if that means they'll get bloody noses and plates put in their skulls and all sorts of things, why would we look at that as wrong? And so I'm just wondering from a Christian perspective, why would we see that as, as wrong? Just I think I, I, I do feel that we should have a bent away from violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think that the culture of nonviolence would be something that we should lean into. But there's always going to be a sense of where does the line between competitiveness and violence mm. get blurred, like in uh, football, where mm-hmm. there's a lot of discussion about the concussion issues and the lingering issues that some people have and the kind of uh, amount of pain relief substances that people have to take in order to get through games, what's it doing to them, the side effects. There's all kinds of this. They're, they're asked to do these things knowing that they're going to be in a violent sport. And so much of the, the laws or the rules that are coming into NFL now are to protect the defenseless player. And so they're trying to minimize the nature of violence in a game which is inherently violent. And, and I, I, I kind of struggle with that because I really enjoy watching football. Mm. My son played it for years and years. And I appreciate the strategy of the game and, you know, the even the aesthetics of the game, you know, the throwing, the running, the mm-hmm. but I, I confess I love a really big tackle. You know, mm. I love the, the sound of the, the crunch of the players coming together. Uh, but I love it when they can both get up off, the, you know, the field. That's mm-hmm. why they're wearing helmets and pads and stuff. So I kind of like that form of aggression that's in a contained area where nobody's going to get hurt versus aggression where people are going to say, I'm going to march my mob onto this field with my sticks and my knife, and you're going to march that mob onto it. And we're going we're gonna to decide who's actually better and stronger. And, and that's, I think that's kind of an, the antithesis of uh, the teaching we should be adhered to. We yeah. see that in hockey too now. Like they've been pushing, like backlashing lots against the fighting culture in hockey in the last couple of years, especially in minor hockey leagues where you've had it, kids growing up in this culture where it's okay to be violent in fights and you have kids that are 13 jumping on the ice and pulling each other's helmets off and getting in brawls. Yeah. So they've pushed back a lot against that. Yeah, the hitting has really been reduced within yeah, minor hockey. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. All the house players don't aren't allowed to hit at all. And mm. then rep, you have to be over four, grade 8, I think, bantam before you can. So yeah. trying to protect people especially at the younger ages mm. yeah and of course there's like insurance reasons behind all that as well but it's just pushing the um non-violence to so i in I, the competitive sport arena so here's here's a distinction that i think we can make about it is that the the point of ufc isn't to injure the point is to win mm-hmm. and the injury might might and often does come along with it I'm not convinced that... So if if you're going to buy that premise that I just put out, you might not, whatever. But let's say it's right. <clears throat> let's say the point is to win, not to injure. I don't see how that is any different from the other major sports that involve contact, mm-hmm. where the, the point is to win, and a, un, a, a, a not preferred outcome of the nature of the sport is that injuries occur. So I, I think football's in that category. I think mm-hmm. hockey's in that category. So the reason why I've never made a strong stance against UFC, I don't like it as a sport. I never watch it. I don't care about it. I think there's better things to watch and to spend our time to be entertained by than UFC. But the reason why I haven't gotten on a on a soapbox to talk against it is because I don't see how it's different as a sport than other contact sports where the point is to win 
and injuries happen as a part of it. Right. I haven't been able to make a case. So there's a rather blurred it. line. There. Yeah. Because I wouldn't go to someone and say, you can't watch football and be a Christian, or you can't watch hockey and be a Christian because injuries happen yeah. in that physical sport. And so I don't feel like I can now come to UFC and say, hey, I'm going to now impose a different category on it because you, the guys are not wearing shirts and you can see the blood easier or you can see the injuries easier. Like the broken bones are underneath the padding and the bruising's underneath the padding, but in the UFC you see it. But So because it's in front of you, it's wrong now? So I, that, that's where I just feel like any kind of imposing UFC is evil and needs to be avoided. I just feel like we're imposing a totally different standard on it than we do any other sport. So either we up the ante on all physical sports and say, look, if violence is going to be a part of it, Christians should live a nonviolent life. And to live the Jesus way means to not yeah. be involved in competitive sports where violence is there and there's a p- potential for injury. I think that's consistent. Mm-hmm. Or to say, we need to show discretion and use our wisdom and the best, safest way to participate. Which is why I would tell someone, like, if you want to have a a well-working brain your whole life, probably don't be a UFC fighter. And probably don't play Play football football. for a long time. (laughs) Uh, What's the ethical dilemma for a hockey player who considers himself an enforcer? Right. Or you got guys who are are, um, quite verbal... Christians, right? Guys like Jerome McGinley and Shane Doan and yep. people like that who are also quite happy Physical. to, to lay out gloves, massive yeah. hits yeah. and drop the gloves and fight. Yeah. So I, I just don't think we can... My point is I don't, I don't want us to put restrictions on UFC that we wouldn't also put on football and, and hockey. But I think the question, because we read mm-hmm. it earlier, was, was more about... Um, well, you have it, Matt, so why don't you? Well... It's kind of talking about um, whether or not we should watch it if it's causing somebody else to to stumble. So if you're in a household, for example, and I let's say I really like watching UFC, mm-hmm. hypothetically, but my younger brother, he finds it repulsive and disgusting. Should I be watching UFC if my younger brother finds it repulsive and disgusting for a Christian to watch UFC. So I think the younger brother is a little different than a husband-wife relationship because I think the young, when you're protecting someone younger than you, it's a little different. I think mm. with a husband-wife, it there has to be a certain level of grace for each other's tastes and interests and yet a certain level of care for the other, right? Yeah, okay, let's put so, it in that context then. Let's say yeah. I'm I'm watching UFC and my wife doesn't like it. But I continue to watch that. I'm like, oh, I don't want to be legalistic. You know, I'm allowed to Christian freedom. But she's like, no, no, it's disgusting and repulsive. I hate when you watch this. How do we deal with a situation like that? So my thought is there has to be kind of grace on both sides. Like I mm-hmm. think for the husband, if, if he realizes it's offensive to his wife, watch somewhere when she's not around or when it's not affecting her personally or in a room where she's not. Mm-hmm. For a wife to say, well, I don't really agree with this and I have maybe certain boundaries around it. Like, I don't want to watch it. But I think we have to have grace for the fact that maybe as men and women, we might be different. As personalities, we have different personalities. I know my husband and I are polar opposites in some things, and we have to respect the areas that we're polar opposite in and not force mm. you know, each other to be the same. Like, there's reasons why we're different. So I think there's a little bit of grace required on both sides there. I think if UFC was sinful, 
then then it's different. Then it's a different conversation because mm-hmm, right. we're not saying just do your sin in private no. so that it doesn't exactly. offend me. That's not what we're saying. And so for those who would say Greg's whole paradigm of how UFC is not sinful, blah, 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 he's totally wrong. They would hear that and say, that's ridiculous because you're basically saying that people should just sin in private so we don't offend others. But if we're going to say that <clears throat> watching UFC right. isn't sinful, I think that's that's the way we got to do it, right? I think 1 Corinthians 8 gives us that kind of a paradigm, this idea mm-hmm. that, look, the activity itself isn't sinful, but your participation in it is going to cause people to stumble. So don't do that. Don't flaunt it. Or, in the context yeah. where it's going to cause other people to stumble. So the person who feels the freedom needs to limit their freedom for the sake of the other. And at the same time, I would say to the spouse who is against it that that you need to be willing to put things into your life and routine so that you are allowing your spouse to be entertained by the things that give them joy and where you remove yourself from the situation. And likewise, your your husband or your spouse, whatever the case may be, needs to be respectful and, and more others focused as well. I think it's a both people. There's no one spouse doesn't win this argument kind of thing. I think it's both need to find a way to make it work in the context of their relationship. So this is a prefer one another matter here. Yeah, I think as Christians, we prefer the other. Yeah. That's a that's something that the New Testament says that marks us, right? Is this idea of not preferring ourselves. We prefer Jesus first and foremost, which leads us to prefer our brothers and sisters mm-hmm. above us. And so when we insist on our own selfish desires all the time, man, we're, I mean, that's, that doesn't look like a Christian. So that goes for both sides of the coin on this issue, I think, does, because yeah. I don't think UFC is a blatant sin that needs to be disavowed from your life entirely. Again, I don't think it's wise. I I mean, I just wouldn't spend my time that way, but that's because people like different things and are into different things. So, And I think it applies to all sorts of issues, right? Um my wife likes particular movies. I don't like particular movies, and I like particular movies, and she doesn't like those movies. And so sometimes if she's going to get scared or if she's not going to enjoy the movie, I won't watch it around her, right? Right. Yeah. It's the same sort of issue. If it's not a direct sin to be partaking in, in watching it, then it's it's just about being mm. charitable yeah. around the other person. I- and I think if you're worried, like as a wife, for what something might be leading your husband to think on or mm-hmm. value or whatever, mm. then I think the what you're called to do is pray in that situation and think like how you would like to be treated if someone wanted to confront you about something. Like you don't, as a wife, you don't want your husband to be continually nagging you and, and putting boundaries around you that you, make you feel boxed in. You want them to know that they understand you and that they care for you and that they're giving you freedom to decide how you're mm. going to live your life mm. and pray for them. So I think if we try and control each other's behavior to make people look the way we want them to, we're not actually getting at the heart issue. And if your husband's heart needs to change, well, then you need to pray for that. That's a bigger, that's a bigger issue. But I think controlling the behavior around it, it, it's just going to go be manifested in something else. Like if he's just loves violence, well, then he may might watch CSI that is really, or whatever, like all these different things that might also push your buttons. Right. So if it's a heart issue, I think pray for the heart and be compassionate and loving and caring and build relationship. Yeah. And I also think we need to, this is an, another good reminder for us to not be um, sponges when we're entertaining ourselves. We, we have to be sieves, right? That imagery of just, yeah. but it can happen with anything. It could happen with watching too many chick flicks or watching The Bachelor. You could, you could be watching The Bachelor <clears throat> in a totally innocent way 
Or you could be watching it thinking to yourself the entire time you're watching it, man, I wish that my husband was this romantic and we went on these <laughs> kinds of dates and I wish that this kind of thing marked my life. You could be watching sports like basketball and enjoy it for the strategy and enjoy it for the game. Or you could be watching it and thinking to yourself, man, I love how those guys dominate and have a swagger and have a killer instinct about them. And I want to bring that into my life. This like no mercy, just capitalize. You're the man. Like there's all kinds of ways that everything we engage in entertainment wise, if we're not careful, it's going to negatively affect us. And so it doesn't mean that the entertainment is evil. It just means we we can't be sponges. We got to be sieves. Awesome. Uh, So just to clarify, this is a Christian freedom issue, right? That's what I'm arguing. Mm -hmm. I mean, if someone wants to present a case to say that UFC is sinful to participate in and to watch, I mean, I'd I'd love to hear that case be made um, by someone. I I just have a hard time. I've thought about it. I have a hard time seeing how that argument could be made and not also be applied to other competitive physical sport. sport. So everyone around the table is in agreement. Yeah, yeah, we are done. But we're the like spring break crew. <laughs> <laughs> we're not the real. You guys. should, you right. should yeah, ask. We're like, the real ones. You should the ask. Jury's in. Christian freedom. There you go. Done. Hey, if you disagree with <laughs> us, you should give us your rationale of why. Mm-hmm. Besides, I don't like it, and blood grosses me out. Why? Why would UFC be considered a sin? Period. And email it to extra. At northview.org. Yep. And then if we really like your submission, we'll interact with it. Okay. Next, we're going to move on to the next question, uh, which has to do with Easter. Uh, It's timely, isn't it? Yes. Yes. A real listener Mm. emailed us. No. We decided this one on our own. (laughs) (laughs) Man, you had them fooled there for a minute, Matt. We could have kept going. (laughs) I felt... My conscience, I couldn't in good conscience Crystal, lie Crystal to the said listeners. before that she listens to the podcast and she and raised this question. people have asked me this question. So oh. this is a legitimate, it's a legitimate question okay, it's that a le- people ask. It's legitimate from the listeners. Through Crystal. Why is Easter not tied to Passover? Should Christians be celebrating past Passover as well as Easter? Johnny, you've done a lot of work with communion through your master's studies at the Weber Institute. And so... I mean, I'm looking to you because you're you're like our resident communion guru. Yeah, actually, communion does play into it because it's the, it's the Lord's table and what it sim- signifies or symbolizes. Um, we have to remember that the the last Passover actually took place at the Last Supper when Paul himself writes in First Corinthians five for Christ our Passover Lamb has come. So we then have to move into a new era. Now, you have to look a little bit historically that the early Christians were Jews, and they were still wanting to be in the culture uh, of celebrating these things, but very quickly they realized that they could no longer celebrate the feasts of the Old Testament, which pointed to Christ himself. Hmm. And once the resurrection had taken place and the ascension after Pentecost... Uh, then they realized that there was a different framework. Uh, a new paradigm had come upon the people of God. And it was an inclusive paradigm that was not just Jewish, but also to all the Gentile world, too. So early again, in the days of worship, you start seeing that Sunday becomes the day, the Lord's day, because it was the day of the resurrection. And so that being the central, most important differentiating tenet of their faith became the reason they would do Sunday worship, and at the heart of Sunday worship was, Greg? 
communion. Communion, celebrating the Lord's table. And I you know sometimes we have this personal piety uh, act that we do when we're doing communion in our evangelical world, but the, the Lord's table unpacks the entire gospel story from mm-hmm. creation right through to Christ's return, including uh, the incarnation, the death, and the atonement. The resurrection, you know, on the Emmaus Road, he breaks bread and their eyes are opened mm-hmm. in that story, and mm-hmm. you've got this connection. Uh, so there is a sense that the resurrection through the Lord's table was the ultimate celebration, and that was implemented weekly. So there was a natural sense that when they wanted to celebrate uh, Christ's resurrection on an annual sense, that that they could do it on the Sunday. Now, the difficulty you'd run into is that Passover fell on on a calendar, on different days of the calendar, the 15th of Nisan, I believe it was. Uh, and so that could be any day of the week, but the early church fathers said, no, it's appropriate that we celebrate the resurrection on what we consider Resurrection Day, mm. Sunday. And so they made that festival to, to fall on the Sunday, and that meant that it was different from Passover, but there was also another uh, factor in, at play here, and that was the Judaizing impact of the uh, New Testament period, when a lot of the Jews said, if you become Christian, you must still keep these Jewish festivals, you must still eat only eat these foods and do all these things. Of course, we see uh, in the book of Acts, the book of Galatians, the book of Hebrews, all these things being unpacked, saying that this is now uh, a different era uh, and and we don't need to be keeping some of those things in there. Mm. So they wanted to put some distance between the church and the Judaizing aspect of mm. that culture who wanted them to be Christians plus, right? right? So that yeah. was difficult for the Gentiles, yeah. but also they realized that when the Jews began to persecute the church greatly, kick them out of the synagogues for proclaiming Christ, Jesus as the Christ, and then they had to meet in their homes. Well, it was natural for them to then say, we need a newer identity. We are not just a Jewish sect. We are a sect of Jews and Gentiles, and what are we built around? We're built around Christ, and and as Paul preached, it's about the resurrection here. So Easter and the resurrection grew out of the Lord's Day on the Sunday, and so uh, we don't have to celebrate Passover in this generation. I think those who want to celebrate Passover as a way of understanding the historical symbolism that pointed to Christ, that's a good good historical study, and I think you've done that with your women's group as well, Crystal. Yeah, like I think the the tragedy in some ways is that as New Testament believers, we don't spend a lot of time on that Old Testament symbolism, and we don't know all the pieces that led up to Christ. And the more we study it and know it, I think the more rich the story of who Jesus is becomes to us, right? The more we understand exactly what he did, and the more we understand the book of Hebrews and other books that unpack that. But we don't want to get caught up in thinking that that is still what we should do as as modern-day Christians. Well, then there's a a stream of the church who think that we should actually be doing the Passover yearly, Uh, and for some people they have different theological reasons, but in reading some of the research, uh, there was actually a rabbi who was very adamant that Christians should not be doing Passover, And, and he gave two reasons. Number one, this is not your story. This is the story of the Jewish people coming out of Egypt. Now, you can, you can say that it's representative and it, it foreshadows, but we need to be uh, right. remembering that it's, it's right. a cultural narrative that, yeah. it, that it's replicating. Yeah, their nation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. they're ethnic people. Yeah. Yeah. And so the other part of it, he says, well, even by your own apostles' teaching, they're teaching that salvation comes by grace, not by the keeping of the law. <laughs> and he says, it, right in the Passover cedar, by keeping these things, you will be justified. Hmm. Mm. 
And so there's a theological danger that we lean into that we could become legalistic yeah. in trying to approach the Old Testament. And, and there's been a, a great deal of heretical sects who basically have gone the reverse exegetically totally. and tried to read uh, Jesus through the Old Testament mm. versus, you know, coming... Seeing it point to yes, him. Yes, mm-hmm. that's right. Plus, I mean, for us, I mean, you said so many great things. One of the things that I was going to pick up on was um, it's great for us as Gentiles to be able to see the the history of the feasts find its uh, fulfillment in the meal of communion, where Mm -hmm. in the meal that has been given to us, we aren't lacking of any meals. We we get the meal that is the fulfillment of all of those meals pointing towards. Mm -hmm. So one of the things that is a challenge for us is because we don't see communion as a meal. We see it as a gluten-free cracker. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> it's your fault, Greg. I know. Hey, you got to prefer others. That's um, right. <laughs> so we have a gluten-free cracker and a little thing of juice. And so we don't see it as a feast. We don't see it as a meal. Whereas, Johnny, I'm sure you know this, the like the early church would have actually yeah. had a meal. Yeah, it was actually part of the whole evening meal culture that uh, in the same way, like a banquet was a meal with a special speaker in the Middle Eastern culture. And so whether that was Greek or Roman, whatever, that's what happened. And so as part of the banquet, they would have a special speaker. And in in Christian circles, they would incorporate biblical teaching. And the highlight of that was that they would actually be uh, celebrating the Lord's table as we go. Well, we talked about the inclusion of the, the Gentiles, and, and Greg was talking about the Lord's table and, and how it symbolizes the, the, the culture of the banquet uh, was what it come, they were meeting in homes and they could do this and there was like thirty or forty people and it, once the church began to grow so immensely they had to actually move out of homes into purpose built structures where everybody could participate they did not want to take out that memorial meal of remembering Christ's resurrection in there so so they made it a much smaller token mm. of the cup and the bread and that's what we're with today. But, you know, I think there are churches who still would insist that, no, you must use wine in the cup, and you must use a loaf of bread, because a certain... T- I'm not so convinced that it's about the particular elements, and it has to be just that. I mean, these were cultural elements found on the dinner table that had significance. They had significance even for the Jews in how they did their prayers around the table. It was all about giving thanks. And there's the bigger picture. Is it the elements... Or is it the act of giving thanks? And I think that's where I would come down to. So we see that the, the Passover in the giving of thanks of God is fulfilled, like you said, in the Lord's table. Hmm. When was, uh, do you know when Easter was officially kind of separated from Passover in terms of a calendar? No, there was no uh, real delineation other than if you start going back to the Council of Nicaea 325, but it had already been finding its own uh, division or separation long before then. Uh, and I think by the time of the desec- or desecration of the temple or the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, mm. things were pretty uh, uh, divided already at that point into two trajectories. Mm. So, But, you know, all, the whole Easter kind of celebration is multifaceted. We're, we're in this season of Lent, which we don't really follow in our church tradition, but many church traditions do. It's kind of like when we had the discussion of Advent back mm. in December. Mm. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good exercise, spiritual discipline, to do without something and fast for a purpose for the recognition and remembrance of what we're doing it for, not to earn points, but so that it helps us to remember, mm. and that's an act of worship. You know, anamnesis 
is the way of remembering something or doing something from the past that points to the future hope that we have. So Lent was this season that they adjoined to Easter because Easter was the prime time for initiating believers through baptism into the church. Mm -hmm. And so that whole catechesis period leading up to it, which was as much as two years, um, would culminate in a series of weeks of fasting. And they, they turned it from a week, Holy Week, into 40 days because it matched Jesus 40 days in the wilderness. And so you, you had the church kind of looking at the symbolism of the gospel stories and how can we live out and keep learning and remembering the gospel stories. Well, let's do it through the calendar year. So then it became a, a way of initiating at Ash Wednesday when you ha- take the ashes and you put it a little X or a cross on your forehead to remember your own mortality. And then you take this uh, sort of ascetic period where you deny yourself these things. And then up to what they called the triduum at the end of Holy Week, which was Saturday, uh, Friday, Good Friday, then the uh, Vigil Saturday, which was the day in between. And they had a lot of readings and prayers, mm-hmm. uh, but they did not celebrate the Lord's Supper on mm-hmm. the Saturday uh, because of that reason. They were denying themselves. And then they would break fast at daylight, breakfast, mm. Mm. and they would break fast at daylight with the Lord's table, and that's where we get the tradition of the sunrise service. Mm-hmm. And so then they would celebrate, he is risen, and everybody would shout, he's, he's risen, risen indeed. indeed. There we go. So there's a little bit of the story of the development of how that whole period came up through, mm. but it really, I mean, and it's especially important, I think, to recognize the, the separate events of the Easter story such as the uh, Good Friday and the atonement mm. picture in mm. there, yeah. mm. but then Sunday and the resurrection, mm. two very distinct uh, events, and mm. we're going to celebrate them differently in our services uh, this year. Cool. You should promo that. Well, Where, yeah, we're, we're going to do, gonna we are doing Friday, Good Friday communion services here at the Abbotsford campus uh, at 4 and 6 o'clock, and that'll be uh, a much more contemplative service, but as well with the Lord's Table, so we can remember the atonement part of the Lord's Table. Mm. And then uh, we will have our usual service times on the weekend where we're going to focus more on the resurrection. Uh, matter of fact, we're going to continue with the unpacking of the Psalms. On Good Friday, Andy Steiger is going to talk about Psalm 22, which is where Jesus famously cries out, My God, my God, wh- uh, why have you forsaken me? Yeah, very appropriate. You know, a beautiful picture of this, and that'll lead us into the Lord's table. Uh, and then uh, our preaching team will be handling one of the resurrection-oriented uh, themes in the Psalms on Resurrection Weekend. Yeah. And that's the regular service. We do have a sunrise service, though, don't 7 we? 7 a.m. 7 a.m. in the worship center with Timbits. You can break That's how they're breaking fast, fast. Yes, with honey cooler Timbits. <laughs> Are there gluten-free Timbits? No. Oh, man, you're out of luck. You're not coming to that service. <laughs> I will be at Sunday night. Hey, so that's if you right. want to come Sunday celebrate, night, yeah. have a have an a Easter too. dinner meal with us at quarter to five, and then we'll have our Easter service at 5.30 that evening in West Court. It'd be great to see you out nice. there as well. Very good service. Great. Well, I bet our listeners did not expect a history lesson today, which they got for free. This, That's okay, amazing. So I'm just going to put it out there. This was one of my favorite ones to participate in. We got to talk about mustard, <laughs> about UFC. Uh, hot dogs. Hot, hot dogs. We talked a lot about hot dogs. Hot dogs. Um, well, eight minutes. <laughs> you timed it. And then we got to talk about <laughs> Easter and communion and history. And man, that's a good time. Those are Greg's three favorite topics. That's right. Hot dogs, Hot dogs UFC, 
communion. Totally. Yeah, yeah. How long before you're implementing hot dogs at communion yeah, at the yeah. Sunday night gathering? No, uh, I just want you show. It up wouldn't take much, and you'll you just see. need a. You just need to add the wiener. That's right. It's only. <laughs> you have that big courtyard outside. You could have yeah. like a barbecues going. Kate, you know what? In summertime, That'll when the weather's nice, we are going to open up those glass doors, and we are going to have some barbecues, and we're going to spill out into the. It's going to be a good time. So I think the Sunday night SMG. gathering could be the choice service for the summer. I think it should be. Well, It'll be busy. People, yeah, that's when it actually gets a lot busier, right? Because yeah. people are gone for the weekend, but they still want to... Bring your frisbees. And yeah. you know what? That courtyard is beautiful. It is. To be able to eat there and then mingle in to, the, mm-hmm. to singing some praises to the God who saved us. Man, it's going to yeah. be a good time in summer. Great. Well, if you guys have questions or opinions or thoughts, please email us at extra at northy.org. We'd love to hear from you guys. Uh, signing off is Matt, the not-so-silent producer. Have a good day.